If you'd open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you again for your grace as we continue to worship you. Our desire, Father, is to give you all the glory and the honor that you rightly deserve. It's our desire, Father, to reverence you this morning, to uh, make sure that we are acknowledging your greatness, as well as all of the wonderful attributes that you possess. Fathers, our thoughts and our uh, uh, mind is focused on you. We ask, Lord, that again, you would speak to our hearts through your word. We pray that you would grant us understanding of what Paul is writing about here. And as always, Father, we ask that you would uh, enable us to apply the word to our life. That it would be the desire of our heart to think through these things, uh, to have a strong desire to be deeply influenced and changed by your word. That, Father, we may live in truth, that we may live out the truth. And so, Lord, we thank you again for the book and the letter of 2 Corinthians. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 2 Corinthians 10, uh, beginning in verse 7. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter, when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another, they compare themselves with one another. They are without understanding. Boasting is, I guess, in a sense, the dominant theme from verse 12 on through the end of the chapter. But we want to we kind of take a look at what Paul is saying beginning in verse 7. And I think that the, uh, I guess the theme that we should be thinking about in this is Paul is modeling for us and what he is displaying for us is Christian maturity. And, and he wants the believers, I think, to recognize that and then to kind of use that as they evaluate and as they look at both their response to what Paul is saying and as they look and evaluate these false teachers or false apostles uh, that have uh, moved into the church. Again, he says to them in verse 7, look at what is before your eyes. So basically, another way to say that is look at the obvious facts. He just wa- that's what he wants them to do, just look at the facts, and he's going to begin to help them work, his, work their way through that. Now, when Paul says this, he is presupposing that the local church has the responsibility to make judgments. He's calling on them to do this. Remember, there's, this, there's trouble in the church, there's these individuals, they call, we call them super apostles. Uh, they have kind of built themselves up. And these individuals are trying to put Paul down and then eliminate his influence in the church and to get people to follow them. So this, is, this, is a, uh, this event that's taking place is of interest and is of some concern for the entire church. And he wants the church to come together and he wants them to make a judgment. One of the things that we need to remember as a church is that even though there are leaders in the church, 
We have elders, we have deacons, we have others who are, who, who are leaders in many other kinds of ways. This is, the church is never a dictatorial kind of thing where one individual or a small group of individuals make every decision and the congregation just kind of nods in approval. There is this idea that we are collectively growing as believers and we are collectively responsible for what we do as a body of believers and therefore we, we have a say. There is judgment to be made on various things, various issues, whatever they may happen to be. The goal is to make sure that we all do that in maturity. The leaders of the church are to lead us into maturity, to teach the word of God, to, to live in light of what the word of God says, to live according to the commands of the word of God, which we all are to do. But, but that's what's to be done. That's what Paul's trying to make sure takes place here uh, in, in this church here in Corinth. So Paul is presupposing the local church has responsibility to make judgment. Those judgments are not to be based on personalities, they're to be made on objective criteria. Again, remember that Paul has told them that they need to kind of clean up their church and they need to obey the word of God. That's what, he, that's what he's getting back to, is they need to obey what the word of God says. So the obedience that's sought here really is a disciplinary action that needs to be taken against these interlopers. I mean, this is not just something where it's kind of ignored and we hope they go away. They need to do something about this. Paul's not there. They need to do something about this. Now, Paul does, in a sense, he does threaten them rightly, not because he's trying, trying to be, again, a, a mob boss and that type of thing, but he wants them to understand this obligation they have to each other and really to Christ, this obligation they have to the body. And so they need to do something about what's going on here in the church. Remember that souls are at stake. The, the maturity level of believers may be hindered greatly by what's taking place. And then, of course, their witness to the unbelieving world. To do this, again, requires the church to make judgments as to whether Paul or the intruders are to be believed or followed. The church will have to change their evaluation of Paul because they've been kind of sucked into what these interlopers have said. And to do so correctly, they will need to reestablish Christian priorities. And that's what Paul wants them to do. Now, it is true that some would rather avoid responsibility. They would rather just not make any kind of judgment at all. But we do need to remember that to refuse to make a judgment is a judgment. It is an evaluation of commitments, strategies, priorities, competing truth claims. You're, you're making a decision. You're making a judgment when you refuse to, to deal with these types of things. What all this also means is that since we cannot avoid having to make judgments, basically we had better make sure we commit ourselves to making a good one. That's really what it comes down to. You've got to make a decision. You need to make sure it's a good one. And so we need to ask God for grace. We need to ask God for wisdom so we can avoid decisions that are based on flattery, personal prejudice, maybe a faulty understanding of the scripture and carelessness. So we pray for those things, then we pursue those things as we study the Word of God, as we think biblically about things. And we want to make sure that the priorities that we are seeking and the priorities that we are using as our standards are, again, those things that come from Scripture. We don't want to be, we don't want to be boiled down to, I just like Paul better, or I just like so-and-so better. That is not helpful to the church at all. It's, it's very detrimental. We've mentioned at times before, there's been many, many churches throughout the course of history in this country 
that have gone through all kinds of splits. Many churches in Savannah have gone through all kinds of splits. The sad thing is, is that most often, those churches are divided over all the wrong reasons. There are right reasons to divide. If I suddenly was to become a heretic, then it would be your responsibility to get rid of me. Now, if for some reason you're unable to get rid of me, and there is a big to-do in the church, then there's a responsibility of those who seek to be faithful to the Word of God to somehow separate themselves from me and maybe those who are following me. That, that needs to be done, because the truth is at stake. However, if it ends up being some kind of a personality thing, and it's, you know, let's say it's between me and someone else, uh, and maybe you like them better than you like me, which I probably wouldn't be surprised at that, but anyway, if that was the case, and the church ends up dividing over that, that is sinful, probably pretty much on everybody's part. And it's a bad testimony to the, to the world. And it's very detrimental to those who are young believers uh, and detrimental to those who may be what we might even call intermediate believers. It's just, it's bad all the way around. And it really diminishes, maybe even defames the name of Christ. And so there should be a lot of shame in that type of thing taking place. And it's happened all too, all too often. And like I've said, it's happened to many churches here in Savannah. It's just a very, very sad thing when that takes place. And just in case you think that when a church goes through that kind of difficulty, it just stays within the church, it doesn't. There's a lot of non-believers. You can ask about different churches around here, and they go, oh, they know the history. And they may be a little skewed, but they know pretty much what's going on. And, of course, it gives us a bad name, which primarily then gives a bad name to Christ. If you think about it, if the Corinthians had practiced discernment earlier, they would not now be in the mess that they're in now. The decisions that they need to make now are going to be very painful. People will have their feelings hurt, and pride is going to be exposed. See, it's now to a point, there's no way to do this without it being messy. There's no way for this to be done without there being tension in the body. There's going to be individuals who don't like the way it's being done. They, they won't like the manner. They may not like maybe someone's attitude or what they perceive to be their attitude. Maybe because they're personally attached to certain individuals. They don't like that person maybe is kicked out of the church or whatever the case may happen to be. It's now at that point that because this is so embedded in the church, this is going to be a painful thing for the church to have to go through and difficult. As we know, and I'm not the first to say this, this is uh, many others have said this kind of thing, but life is made up of many interlocking decisions. And failure at a relatively easy level frequently returns to haunt us. And so there are times that we have to make still maybe a hard decision, but it's better to make a hard decision early, if it's correct, than just to wait to see what will happen. Because again, it's not a good thing when we do that. In verse 7, Paul says, If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so are we. Now what he's addressing here is these false apostles basically claimed to belong to Christ in some special sense. It would be kind of similar to someone saying today, well, I follow Christ. So let's say that, uh, you know, Steve and I have gotten into discussions before, and we may disagree on certain things, whatever it happens to be. And so I may say, kind of, because I'm, I'm poking fun, I'll say, well, you know, you can believe that, Steve, but I follow Christ. Okay, you get what now, we, we say that in a, you know, we're, we're trying to be funny in, in that way, but there are those who do that in a very serious way. And the idea is, yeah, well, he's a heretic, and I'm not, and you know I'm not because I follow Christ. There's nothing of substance has been said. 
that's kind of what these, one of the things these individuals are saying here. And so they're saying they follow Christ in a special sense. They belong to Christ in a special sense, indicating that Paul doesn't. Well, and what they mean by that is they're authentic. They're committed to Christ. They're genuine. As for this other fellow named Paul, well, I don't know. So Paul's response is really very simple. He says he belongs to Christ. And he belongs to Christ no less than his opponents do. His opponents are, by the way, making a very subjective claim here. So Paul is basically saying, look, if they're allowed to make a subjective claim based on personal conviction, then I should be allowed to do the same. But there is something that's important to note here. Because remember, you know, we're able to read this after all this is done. And we know the background of all of these characters. And we know that Paul is a genuine apostle. We know that Paul is responsible for writing a majority of the New Testament. Paul is no small figure. Paul is a major character in Christian history in the early church, a major character in the Bible itself. And so what we notice that Paul does here is he doesn't claim any superior role. He doesn't say that he's the real super apostle. He doesn't say that. Now, that later on, he will get into a thing where he kind of talks about some of his experiences. And that will be important when we get there. But you'll have to notice how he does that. He doesn't claim he belongs to Christ more than they do. And when he does talk about his visions later, which will be over in chapter 12, he doesn't refer to himself as a great apostle with special revelations. He refers to himself as a man in Christ. So there is a humility here that can be easily overlooked I would say a maturity here that can be easily overlooked if we're not reading carefully what Paul is addressing as he writes to this church. D.A. Carson says this, As we have seen and will continue to see, when Paul defends himself and points out that there are different levels of maturity and different roles one has in the body of Christ, he never erects a wall or a fence that might encircle an inner ring of Christians. Different roles, different gifts, different levels of maturity and understanding? Yes. Categorically different sorts of Christians? Never. So hopefully, I think it's true here, there is no inner circle. There's no inner circle of leadership. Now, there are leaders. There's elders, there's deacons. They do meet. They normally meet by themselves. But they are, it is not an unapproachable group. It is not a secret group. What they do in, in the meeting is not secret that no one knows. There are no hidden agendas. There is never this idea, well, we need to keep this from the congregation until we're ready for them to know. That doesn't happen. You're told everything. And that's important that it's done that way. And that is always done. And so we don't have a, a, a group of, of just of, uh, an inner circle of friends where we keep certain people out. You know, it's not that Tom and myself, and maybe Steve, and sometimes maybe even Robert, when we get together and we meet and no one else is ever allowed to come together. Even if we become really good friends, it's never to the exclusion of anyone else. The idea of an inner circle is always wrong in a church, always. And we, we wanna make sure that we go to great pains to make sure that that's not the perception. You, you can't, we can't prevent anyone from ever thinking that, but we wanna make sure there's no evidence of that. And of course, we know that should be true for all of us. We all know that just within a congregation, there are certain people that we are naturally closer to than others. That's not a sin. There are certain people we may hang out a lot more with than anyone else. That's not a sin.
But if it's done to the exclusion of someone else, if we are allowing someone else to remain outside and alone, so to speak, and we're never looking out for them, now we begin to have problems. So we want to make sure that we're not saying it's wrong for you to have really close friends in the church, because you can't be close friends with everyone. We, we do want to deal with reality here. But we do want to make sure that it's always our responsibility as a whole, and in particular as leaders, to make sure that no one is ever left out in that sense. That there is truly great care being taken over every single person, a great concern over everyone who is here and who is part of the body. And so you notice that Paul makes sure that, that he never allows that to take place, even though he, he could do that. You know, he could have an executive committee that, you know, they, all, they get to meet with Paul, you know, the great one. And everyone else, man, I wish I could be part of that group, you know. Well, in the church, you know, if you ever want to be an elder, you can. Start studying, and we can help you with that. Uh, we want to see that. We actually we want to encourage that. We want there to be more elders in the church. And the way you do that is you grow as a believer in your knowledge of the Word of God, your knowledge of theology, and then, of course, in applying that and living that out in your character. We want to see that in the church. There's no one type of personality that's required. In fact, the more different our personalities are, probably the better uh, it would be. And so we want to make sure that, that that is a message that we always understand is true for the body here. Spurgeon said this. He said, I have not the slightest desire to suppose that I have advanced in the spiritual life many stages beyond my brother. As long as I trust simply in the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ and think nothing of myself, I believe that I shall continue to be pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ, that this joy will be in me and that my joy will be full. So he recognizes that he's advanced a little bit, maybe beyond certain other believers, but he wants everyone to know that what he trusts in is the same thing they trust in, and that's the blood of Jesus Christ. When we say the blood of Jesus Christ, what we mean by that is the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We mean everything about the atonement. That's really what's embodied in that phrase when we say that, that you know, I believe in the blood of Jesus. That's what, that, that's what it should mean. You know, we don't believe that you, know, you have a vial of his blood and somehow there's something special about that. No, it's what that symbolizes, what that represents, uh, which is the death of Christ. And when we speak of the death of Christ, we must speak about the life of Christ. We must speak of the burial of Christ. We must speak of the resurrection of Christ. And, and then the purpose of the atonement. And so what Spurgeon is saying there is what we all say is that we are saved the same way. And we're all going to be in heaven because of this, for the same reason. And that's because of the work of Jesus Christ. In verse 8, Paul goes on. He says, For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. So basically, Paul, you know, he's, he's saying, Well, I don't want to do this, but, but I'm speaking factually. He does have authority. He does have authority. Remember, he's an apostle. What he says goes. So he does talk about it. He doesn't want to brag about it, but he wants him to understand the purpose that God gave him authority. He makes it really clear. It was given to him for the building up of believers, period. Not for building up himself, not for tearing anyone down, none of that. Paul had founded the church. They knew that. Paul had discipled many of them in the early days of the church. Paul knew that. And Paul is pointing out that he used his authority not to gain an advantage for himself or to promote himself, still less to tear others down, but to build up the church. And now the reason why he emphasizes that, I believe that Paul knows that these interlopers, these individuals, 
Yeah, they're, they're claiming they have authority, and the authority they're using is to tear others down to build themselves up. That's not what Paul did. And so Paul wants them to take note of that. Then in verses 9 through 11, he says this, I don't want to appear to be frightening uh, you with my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. So basically what they're saying is, is look, when Paul writes letters, he's real bold, but man, when he's in person, he's nothing. You know, it's kind of like how some people may say certain things on Twitter they would never say to you in person. Or maybe people might say some things on Facebook and they won't say to you in person. All right, well, basically, Paul wants them to know he's consistent. He is consistent. It is believed, if you look at various uh, biographies of Paul and, and take into account what others during that time may have thought of Paul, it is believed that Paul did lack what, what they might call rhetorical flourishes, that individual who did a lot of speaking, he would be able to, to move crowds with just the beauty and the strength of his language, with the images that he might be able to paint. Uh, and so individuals who, were, who, were, who would view themselves to be like Paul, to be in his kind of a position, that would be expected to be able to do that, especially in a Hellenistic society. But Paul didn't have that. But what he did have is he was consistent. He was a man who lived by his convictions based on what the Word of God had to say. Paul was morally, intellectually, logically, and spiritually consistent. Now, he was very flexible. Remember that he was a Jew to the Jews and a Gentile to the Gentiles. What, what did that mean? Well, some had stated, you read back to some of the other letters, some had stated that Gentiles needed to be circumcised so they could legitimately come under the lordship of really the Jewish Messiah. Uh, that, that you know, there were the Judaizers. They would come along and say, look, you know, it's, it's good you believe in Jesus, but if you really want to be close to him, if you really want to make sure you're saved, that type of thing, you need to follow the law, you need to be circumcised uh, so that you kind of be in the in group. And Paul's stance on that was always no. But with that, let me tell you two different things. When Timothy was, was um, circumcised, when, when they brought up Timothy being circumcised, Paul didn't hesitate to circumcise Timothy. No one was suggesting that Timothy had to be circumcised to be saved. Timothy was a young man who had a Greek father and a Jewish mother, so they knew he had not been circumcised. But he was Paul's assistant, and he needed to go into the synagogues, go with Paul to the temple, and go in several places. And so as to not to hinder the ministry, he needed to be circumcised. And so he was circumcised. Paul didn't hesitate. There's a consistency there. Because what was the issue? The issue was not, was Timothy saved? The issue was him offending, truly offending, those who were non-believers in these places. If he'd walked into the temple not being circumcised, that, there would have been a riot. And he would have not been able to help Paul out. It'd be kind of, I guess in, in one way, it would be like this. If I was to go to a Muslim country... Now, I eat pork. If I go to a Muslim country, I'm not eating pork anymore. I'm not being phony. I'm not being two-faced. All I know is if I eat pork there, it's going to hinder the ministry of the gospel. And so I'm not going to eat it. I have the right to give that up uh, for that reason. So that's, that's kind of the idea there. And then if, I, if I'm working in that country, then I come back here, and the very first thing I want to have is bacon with my bacon and eggs. 
then I'm not being two-faced. It's just, I've never said it was a sin, but while I'm there, I don't want to offend them in their presence because of their dietary laws, and it's a very simple thing. And it's not being two-faced at all. So Paul was not inconsistent. He held to very deep, biblically-based convictions. He would gladly circumcise a Christian if it would increase the effectiveness of their witness. But he would absolutely refuse to do so if it would jeopardize the sufficiency and the exclusiveness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where the consistency was. So Paul was flexible, but he was consistent. So you see, one of the most difficult lessons Christ's disciples had to learn was that in the kingdom of God, position and power were no evidence of authority. And that's what these interlopers are trying to do. They were, they were trying to move in and, and by, their, you know, by their degrees, by their letters, so to speak, by whatever positions they may have had in society, they believe that equates to authority in the church. And it never has and it never will. If an individual was the president or the CEO of some large company and he came and be, became a part of our church, that means nothing as far as the individual serving in leadership in the church. What matters is, is his walk with the Lord. What matters is, is his character, not his knowledge of anything or his positions. He may never serve in leadership. He may serve in leadership, but it would never be because, and this would never be say, said here, uh, but in some churches it would be said, well, if someone so has joined the church, they're a CEO of X and X company, they, they, of course, they would be a great leader. No, there is no of course to that. And that's what Paul wants them to know. He wants the believers to understand this. Jesus warned his followers not to pattern their leadership after that of the Gentiles who loved to lord it over others and to act important. You see, a major factor contributing to the Corinthians' dilemma concerning apostolic authority was really their superficiality and their shallowness. Paul is really here calling them to maturity. They looked only on the surface of things. They were oriented to external, externalities. You can tell that's not normally my vocabulary, but I thought it was a good word. And they were oriented towards worldly wisdom. So as a result, these false apostles came in and they found them fair game. And so in order to retrieve this really indiscriminate church, Paul is going to have to engage in what he, what he found personally repugnant, and that was self-commendation. But again, his goal, and I think we can see it when we read through this, was not self-enhancement. It was the restoration of the Corinthians. And to that end, he did wield his authority as an apostle of Christ. And he did so freely, and he did so without being ashamed of it. He tore down the strongholds and arguments and every pretension of his opponents, but he built up believers. You see how a Christian uses authority as evidence of their spiritual maturity and character. An immature person swells as he uses his authority, whether it's in a big setting or a small setting, whether it's a big church or a small church, whether it's a big committee or a small committee or whatever it happens to be. When, when our ego begins to swell with the using of authority, there's a problem. A mature person, a mature believer, should grow in the use of authority, and others will grow with them. The wise believer, the wise pastor, the wise elder, the wise deacon, like a wise parent, knows when to wait in loving patience and when to act with determined power. It takes more power to wait than to strike. A mature person does not use authority to demand respect, but really to command respect, and there's a huge difference. Mature leaders probably will suffer often while they wait to act. The immature leader will act impetuously 
and make others suffer. And that's what Paul is demonstrating for us here in these letters. So I pray that we will ask the Lord to help us to mature as believers, not only in our understanding of the scripture, but really having a strong desire for the word of God to shape who we are, the way we think, the way we respond, the way we talk, even changing our personalities if necessary, to make sure that we recognize that whatever kind of authority you may have, whether it's great or small, in the church and your family, that you are using it in the right way, that you're using it to build up others, that we're never, ever doing anything to engage in some kind of self-commendation or to build ourselves up. If somebody recognizes you and pats you on the back, you can be thankful and grateful, but don't go seeking those things. Don't try and build those things up. You're going to fall flat on your face, but more importantly, you will become more and more useless to God in the lives of others, you will begin to suffer the consequences as you begin to lose touch, I believe, with the Lord as you begin to fade and move away from a close walk with Jesus Christ. And I trust that will always be something that is precious to all of us that we will want to preserve and to protect. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you, Lord, for Paul and for his maturity. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to recognize that even those of us who may think that we are mature, that we all still need to continue to grow in maturity. And that, Father, that we will always find ourselves in a position that we are seeking the good of others, that we're seeking what is best for others spiritually, that we truly are desiring to glorify Christ in all that is done. We pray that you would help us to throw off any desire that we have for our ego to be fed in any way, that it truly doesn't matter how we are built up or viewed by others in one sense. It does make a difference as we seek to serve you, but it shouldn't make a difference to us as far as our ego goes. And Father, we know that we struggle with that, sometimes maybe a lot more than we want to admit. Father, we always want to be an individual who is used by you to truly help others to progress in their lives as Christians. We pray that we would never be the individual who hinders anyone's growth or coming to Christ. Help us, Father, to be able to honestly evaluate ourselves. Help us to take advantage of the Word of God to use as a standard for which to measure ourselves. And maybe other mature believers to help us in that evaluation along the way. Father, we do want to pray for those here who may not know Christ. Because those who don't know Christ really spend a lot of their time trying to find ways to feed their ego or to satisfy their ego or at least to protect it. There's a lot of fear in their lives. We pray, Lord, you help them to recognize that self-preservation never goes well, that we're unable to save ourselves in any way. We pray that they would see that they are separated from you and that the only way to you is by you forgiving them of their sin, which can only be accomplished by believing in Jesus Christ and all that he's done on the cross for us. We ask, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself in that manner, that they would believe. Again, Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would cause us to think about it a great deal. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.